0: Now let's join Pastor Joey as we study through the Bible. So, verse
1: 24. Now, there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves is it not he who sits at the table. Yet I am among you as one who serves, but you are those who have continued with me in my trials and I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one upon me. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And stop there. We're going to have three different topics tonight emerge from this conversation. This is the first uh, at the, this, the the Last Supper. It's amazing because if you think about it, tonight we have a pastor-deacon meeting, and we get together as leaders, and we pray and we talk about vision for the church and things coming up and we cross our T's and daughter I's kind of a thing. And you know, but we just really pour into one another. We it's discipleship on a leadership level. We just enjoy one another's company as men and and come together. That's and as my role as a pastor, the senior pastor, I, I try to have, you know, I always have something to share, some vision, a word from the Lord, and impart vision and encourage the men and, and build them up and we're going forward. Okay? And I'm called to be a servant leader in this circumstance, in these situations, always. And I'm thinking about this text all week and how that's really what this was like. This is the last time that Jesus is seating, seated and sitting with these apostles in this context. Now, this night includes John 14, 15, and 16, on the way, the truth, and the life. That's all there. This includes in John, where Jesus washes the apostles' feet. This night, this upper room gathering, it has these incredible details with distinctions recorded for us in the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the uniqueness of John's gospel. There's so much there. It's that last teaching, that last mentoring, that last discipling, in the context here of all that Jesus had done with these guys in the ministry. We know his earthly ministry was about three years from the presentation by John the Baptist to the time he's gonna go to the cross. And we know that the, the primary focus of this, the back two years of ministry was really investing in the three, the 12, and the 70. We know that Judas is betraying him and Judas has left the room. We know that from the balance of scripture and interpreting scripture. So we're going to get this topic first, the dispute about greatness. Then we're going to get Jesus talking to Peter about specific things for Peter. And then we're going to get Jesus talking about being ready for the things of the night that are unlike any other night. So it starts with the dispute concerning the 11, because Judas is gone. Then it moves to Peter specifically, individually, who will be a leader of these 11 in the early church in the book of Acts. And then it goes back to the eleven. And what's entailed for them for that night and a bit more. So we're going to get three scenes tonight of Jesus dialoguing with the apostles at the Last Supper. And pouring into them and teaching them right up to the end in this context. Now, once they go in the Garden of Gethsemane. Once Peter and John and those guys fall asleep. Once Judas comes with the betrayer's kiss. Peter denies the Lord three times. Jesus goes before Herod. Jesus goes before Pilate. Jesus on the cross. They're still learning, but from an observation point as opposed to being instructed. It's important context. We want to get that. So tonight, when we think about all this collective passage of Scripture we're going to study as a whole, I would call these life lessons in the final hour. I'd call this life lessons in the final hour. This is Jesus' life lessons to the men who would change the world who in Acts 1 will be in the upper room with women and the men waiting for the day of Pentecost and Holy Spirit to come. These are life lessons at the last personal mentoring uh, discipleship time between Jesus and the 11. Now, in the context, we've, this type of teaching Jesus gave repeatedly to be the servant of all, we know from Matthew's Gospel prior to getting to Jerusalem, John and James sent their mother to Jesus to say, can my son sit on your right hand and your left hand? He said, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'll drink and be baptized with the baptism I'll be baptized? And they said, we are. And he said, well, for the right hand and my left hand, that's for my father to be determined, but you will know what that baptism and that cup is like. And they would for James's death is recorded for us in the book of Acts. And John, of course, wrote the gospel of John the three epistles of John and was exiled to Patmos in to receive the revelation of Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation so we know that already happened that conversation and here they are again disputing about greatness now Jesus said to them that they would rule over the 12 tribes of Israel also in Matthew's gospel when Peter bragged about how they had left everything Jesus said that they would rule over 12 thrones. They would sit on 12 thrones ruling over Israel. So contextually, no, there's something very special for the apostles with Jesus. They're Jews. And, you know, there's 12 tribes in the Old Testament. There's 12 apostles in the New Testament. Yeah, and we understand that. The priest, the high priest had the 12 stones representing the 12 tribes on his chest in the Old Testament, the Mosaic Covenant. There's something very special in God's numerology equation of 12, we, we understand that, even though we set up uh, time, space, and matter for the seasons and whatnot. We understand that. Okay, so, but it is interesting in the, in the context for these 11 that we're told 12 will reign. And so immediately, people who study the Bible go, well, who's going to replace Judas? Because Judas was replaced. And it would seem very probable, if not most likely, that Matthias, who replaced Judas in Acts chapter 1, and the faith of the apostles in obedience to the scriptures is probably the 12th. doesn't have to be, but probably as many speculate that Paul, that Matthias was man's choice, but Paul was God's choice. But that's for God to worry about. But those 12 thrones and judging the 12, thro- 12, judging the 12 tribes of Israel in a future context, that's for God to figure out with these men. But it is noteworthy to the church, the Holy Spirit through Paul the Apostle said to the Corinthians do you not know that you will judge angels to the Gentile church? He said, can you not resolve disputes among yourselves? Can't you just find one wise man that can figure things out so you don't go before authorities and judges who don't believe God to resolve your disputes? And he said, do you not know that you will judge angels? So that is an indication of what the church can expect for the future, that we will have a position of judging angels. Interestingly enough, And of course, we're told in Revelation that we'll rule and reign with him. So what that looks like, we just have to receive that by faith. But we do know we will rule and reign. The church will rule and reign with Christ in a future age. And we will judge angels. And that's worth noting in this context. But really, I want to draw your attention to, in this passage, the dispute itself about who's going to be the greatest. And in this time of equipping and in these life lessons, there really are warnings, in a sense, about being human without the Holy Spirit. They really are. And I'll I'll point them out to you tonight. So as we look at this, in verse 26, Jesus said, "...he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves." So the exhortation yet again in the final setting is Jesus exhorting, instructing, and really commanding the apostles to be servants. He who governs is he who serves. And of course, we've talked about this. But the world, even the world, esteems servant leaders, the business world. It's, it's Scott Cunningham, the worship leader, and I were having this conversation a couple weeks ago when he was here because he studies a lot of business books and this kind of stuff. And we talked about most modern business books of leadership management. They talk about the servant leadership model, which, of course, is a biblical model. When I was working with the U.S. Olympic Committee and we studied leadership, they highly esteemed the servant leadership model which, of course, we know in the fullness of the scriptures is a biblical model. We don't want people who tell us what to do. We want people who show us what to do. That means a servant leader. But for the kingdom of God, the servant leadership model goes even deeper because we see this exemplified by the Apostle Paul brilliantly, because particularly the Corinthians, where he would say, I love you, I give everything for you, and, and the more I love you, the, the less I'm loved by you. And I exhort you, I beg you to be reconciled to Christ. But then he says, I'm begging you, but when I come to you, you have to decide, are, are we going to be received in love, or am I going the, the, to come to chasten you and correct you and, and, and deal with things? It's a delicate balance to be a servant leader model. These men were called to be servant leaders in the church, and they were. We're called... To serve. The greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all. And as Mark's gospel tells us, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Now, in John's gospel, we know in this context that Jesus got up from the table, took the towel and the water, and washed the feet of the apostles. And Peter was offended. He was like, No, no, don't you do that. And then Jesus explained to him, You don't understand, but you will. And I need to do this for you. And then Jesus said something very interesting. So we're going to use scripture to interpret scripture for us. He said, I've given you a model of what to do. Uh, An example. When he washed their feet, he took the lowest position in the culture and the society. And he said, I've given you a model of what to do. And then he said, happy are you if you do these things. And we find in the human experience that there's great joy in serving others and losing your life for Christ's sake and finding it in him and serving others. And we see that when we don't seek to benefit from others, to take from others, but to serve others, but to bless them and benefit them, it generally goes well. I watched an interesting video of a former world champion surfer who's a very in-demand public speaker. He's been on all these uh, morning shows like NBC and all these things. And he was talking about, and he's not a professing believer in Christ, but he was trying to encapsulize the joy of when you give to other people unconditionally. When you do something for people without expecting anything in response, and he kept saying, it's the happiest feeling you can know in the human experience. But for the follower of Christ we're not limited to the black and white of the human experience but we have technicolor and understanding that we're not just doing it for time space and matter for our timeline but it's for all eternity for Jesus said if we give a child a cup of cold water in his name there is a reward in that so this lesson Jesus is giving them lessons in the last hour the first one is to be careful about power the the temptation for power the temptation to take, the temptation to lord over, to be the boss, to be authoritarian or totalitarian. The teaching of Jesus washing the feet and this phrase in verse 27, excuse me, 26, that he who governs is as one who serves, it teaches us and gives us example of the danger of self-promotion self-exaltation and the power that is often lusted for in self-exaltation and self-promotion. And the Bible tells us that promotion comes from the Lord. He brings one woman down, he raises another woman up. He brings a man down, he raises another up. God says, he that honors me, I will honor. And of course, the famous story that Jesus taught the parable, when you go to the feast, don't sit at the best table, sit in the back. Let the master of the table invite you forward to a better seat, but don't be embarrassed by being told to go to the back. You can never go wrong in serving others and esteeming others. In fact, when Paul wrote the Philippians and the Holy Spirit, he said, Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. That we that we consider one another and that we serve others and esteem others greater than ourselves. So it's a good word to be reminded of in losing our life in service to others, we find it and we gain it. Now we read on. Verse 31, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, which of course is Peter, who of course is Peter, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he, Peter, said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to die. And then Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. There it is, just framed. This person-to-person dialogue, personal dialogue, framed. In the heart of chapter 22 of Luke, in the Last Supper context. Now, Peter, in his personality, he's the one that walked on water, right? Peter often said things, Thou the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter, Peter would go for it. He's a go for it guy. He's a go for it guy. He's that guy. He'd pet out in a really big surf without thinking about how big it really is. Okay? He's, he's that guy. He would have been an extreme sports guy, even though he's a fisherman. He'd go for it. Peter had a lot of enthusiasm. And he did experience things others didn't. Let's be honest. How many of the other apostles walked on water? Right? There were twelve. Hey. They could say, You sank. And you could say, but I walked. He defied the laws of the universe miraculously and walked on water. Yeah, he sank, but no risk, no reward, right? And and he, and we, there's so many things we appreciate, appreciate about Peter, but because he was willing to go for it and he sort of had that can-do attitude and mentality, he had to realize that his sufficiency was not in of himself in what Christ was going to call him to do. He was going to be called to lead the early church. He was going to be called to preach to thousands on the day of Pentecost and explain what God was doing in fulfillment of the prophet Joel. He was going to be called to confront people who were in sin that were going to drop dead right in front of him. He was going to be entrusted with his shadow healing people when he walked by. He was going to be the leader when he's incarcerated, thinking he's going to be put to death the next day, he'd still have a good night's sleep and be rescued by an angel. He would be entrusted to raise Dorcas from the dead, even as he watched Jesus raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. He would be entrusted with great supernatural power. He'd be entrusted with helping the church of Jesus Christ go from being an ethnically Jewish church to a universal church of all peoples and all nations. There was much that was going to be entrusted to Peter. And when Jesus told him after he was restored to the Lord, when you're older, you'll go where you don't want to go. He would still say, what, what about that guy? And he'd point to John. So human, right? The apostles are just so human. I can just totally see it all. Like, it's just it's so human. He just said, don't you worry about him. I'm preparing you for you. It's like in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Aslan, the lion who represents Christ, he deals with each person individually. Peter or Edmund or Lucy, but he never discusses Lucy's business with Edmund. He always says what I have for them, I have for them what I have for you, my child, I have for you. But in this setting, Peter said, "Lord, if all these guys deny you, I 'm your man tonight. So he kind of brought on himself. You know, we don't like public embarrassment, and in fact, it's to be avoided at all costs, if by choice, right I mean no one wants to be embarrassed publicly. It's just one of those things in the human nature. And when we talk about in ministry, when we talk about guys going out to, to plant churches and, you know, distractions in the sanctuary, we always say, like, hey, you don't want to call someone out, generally speaking, if you don't have to. You want to, you know, let it distract you, but try and talk with them privately. We, we know that, you know. And, again, even when I did training for coaching, it's would say, hey, you know, like, if you've got a difficult athlete, by all means, try and avoid public ridicule of that athlete amongst the other athletes, try and get them privately but you know, we all know sometimes someone brings it on themselves, like there's just times when the, the athlete exposes himself and makes it all about them in front of everybody and the coach or the you know, assistant coach have no choice but to address that and so too it is in life and just sometimes at work, you don't want to embarrass an employee among other employees but if they just are so out of bounds you might have no choice but to address that and that's the context here I mean Peter stood up when they're arguing over who's gonna be greatest. They were all upset with John and James when they sent their mom to try and get leverage and get, you know, a better position, you know, backdoor, that whole thing. That already happened. And Peter's like, hey, let's catch it the quick tonight. These guys, they're on the team. I'm your quarterback. I'm the starting quarterback. I'm your goalie. I'm your starting pitcher. I'm 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 your manager. I'm your shift manager. I'm your principal. I'm your superintendent. I'm the boss. These guys, they're good guys. I've been in business with, with you know, my brother Andrew and John and James. They're good guys. We grew up together. We went to the same synagogue, the same school. We're very, you know, Jewish in that. Matthew, I wouldn't trust him. He was a tax collector, but that's a different story, right? Thomas, he won't believe anything you say to him. I mean, you can just picture Jesus. You know, Peter, Judas is gone, and Peter didn't mean, like. Really, like, what's? Uh, it couldn't be Peter because he's in charge of the money, or Judas, he's in charge of the money. So Peter, in the midst of this, he literally stands up. The Gospels tell us and he goes, "Hey, these guys." You don't want them taking the game-winning shot. I'm the guy you want taking the game-winning shot. Draw this player to me, I'll, I'll drain that shot, like a basketball analogy. He literally said that. And Jesus says, Peter, you're not ready to take that shot. In fact, Satan, oh, here we go again. Remember last week we talked about how ugly the first six verses were of this chapter? And here's Satan again. Peter's like, man, I, I, I'm, your, I'm your starting quarterback. I can do this. I can live for you. I can die for you. I can be in prison for you. And, and Jesus says, Satan, the most, he's an archangel, the fallen angel, more powerful than any human being apart from Christ. Satan has, he's asked for you. Like, think how sobering that is. Satan, not a fallen angel, not the principalities and powers like five star general, Satan, four star generals, three star generals, colonels, captains, lieutenants, second lieutenants, right? In officer ranks. No, Satan. That's like in human government, that's, you know, Lenin or Stalin or Hitler at the very top. He's asked for you. That is so sobering. Just think about that for a minute. It's one thing if some low-ranking demon wants to wreck your life. It's another if Satan goes to Jesus and says, that guy, Peter, Mr. Walking on Water, I want to sift him like wheat. That is so sobering. I don't even really want to know who's trying to destroy me. But I'll tell you this, the devil knows who you are, and he knows your address. And we abide in Christ, we're good. We draw near the Lord, we're good. We want to go on our own, it's You know it's still filtered by the Lord, and He's got our back. But you know it is what it is. And so there's Peter, so full of confidence. I am your starting quarterback, if you will. And Jesus, like you don't even understand. You you don't even know what's going to go down tonight. You're you just don't even know. The devil himself is asking for you personally. Remember, Jesus took on the devil for 40 days in the wilderness and succeeded where our first head of the race, Adam, failed. Jesus' second, Adam, conquered. And then he says, and not only that, Peter, you're actually, you're in this game tonight. You are in this game. And you're going to turn it over three times tonight. You are full of confidence right now. But before this night is over, you are going to be weeping. That rooster is going to crow. And that crowing rooster on this morning, this night, for the rest of your life, that crowing rooster is going to remind you of your darkest moment in your human experience. You will deny me before that rooster crows three times. You will deny me this night. And it was so, um, you know, it's a problem when we're we're self-confident. We just don't see that. Like we say, I just didn't see this coming. Like, but Paul warned us in the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 10, if anyone thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. And and that's the problem. We when we're totally dependent upon the Lord, we're strong. But when we become self-confident and self-dependent that we can do this, I got this, then we set ourselves up for failure. But there's good news in this. Jesus said in verse 32, I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you and that your faith should not fail. And when you've returned to me, you're going to strengthen your brethren. Through your failure, Peter, your faith, your faith will not fail. You will deny me, but your faith will not fail. And I will strengthen you, and you'll be returned to the brother, your brethren. And you could also add, based upon what we know, we might say, and you will be one of the greatest leaders in the history of the human race. You will get up on the day of Pentecost when people are speaking languages fluently by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit and tongues of fire on their head, and everyone's wondering what's going on. You're gonna stand up and you're gonna quote scripture like you've never quoted scripture.